Welcome to another episode of Courageous Conversations. Today, I'm having a conversation with my friend here, Tyrone. Tyrone works uh, in cybersecurity, particularly in the banking industry, um, which, as most people probably know, is not a very diverse industry. He has had to spend most of his career working in predominantly, if not exclusively, white spaces. Um, so he's going to be talking about his experiences with that. Uh, so Tyrone, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and opening up and kind of sharing with us what your experiences have been. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I think a good good place to start off the conversation would be this. You've done quite well in your career, right? Your title right now is Chief Information Security Officer. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot of titles above that that you could get to in your field. So you've done quite well for yourself uh, professionally. What do you say to those people out there who say that Black professionals have a harder time advancing and you know are, are kind of kept away from senior leadership roles. Clearly, you've managed to do it. So if you've managed, why can't they? What would you respond to that? Oh, man. Uh, combination of things. So, for example, I'm pretty sure I'm the first uh, African-American to hold the title I have here. Um, so, generally speaking, I think if you look at the sheer statistics from a reputable source, you would see that historically and currently it is still hard for, for African-American professionals to advance in their careers as opposed to their white counterparts for a multitude of reasons. Uh, one reason is uh, we think about diversity, uh, color, but the thing that makes us even more diverse or ties to our color or our experiences, right? Mm. And so if you're constantly hiring i think we as humans have a natural affinity for the familiar so if you constantly hire just based off sheer familiarity you don't have a diverse uh, base to choose from then you naturally will just hire based on what you know and that's where the cultural differences come in so for the way i i may speak in a manner that you or a group of people find unpleasing but mm -hmm. for me culturally that's how we speak and so if the diversity of thought uh, isn't there in the willingness to understand that different doesn't necessarily mean less than or uh, unequal, then the opportunity is there. But still predominantly, uh, most people in any type of executive position, predominantly white. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you have a different way of speaking when you're at work versus at home? Uh, not really. And I, I think I did it first, but, uh, I've had to groom how I speak just in, in general. And, and I typically keep the same tone and inflections and, and word selection just based on me wanting to actively introduce, you know, a, a diverse tone, even speech pattern. So I always try to use proper English. Mm -hmm. That's the way I was raised. Um, but as far as like my inflections, like if you're from my area and you hear me speak, you'll probably know I'm from the inner city, my area, as opposed mm -hmm. to someone that was raised in the suburbs, same city, same color, but I will sound different. I sound like an inner city kid for this area. Yeah. That's interesting. So you think differences of culture and how you present yourself, et cetera, can make it difficult for, right, the majority population in your industry, right, white people in your industry to really see the potential either in a candidate, right, who, who is culturally different or even an employee, right, who maybe already works for them, um, but is just 
very different how they present themselves. It might make be more difficult for leadership to see that individual's potential. Is that the idea? Yeah. Um, if you're given this set of standards to measure someone by, but that set of standards wasn't based on diversity, yeah. then um, you may not recognize. I, I think we're, we all have a level of brilliance and intelligence, each individual person. And so you may not recognize that because you're not accustomed to how they present it, right? If you take the same same uh, person and package them differently, but they still have the same capabilities, you may be more conditioned to look for these telltale signs of you know whether this person would be successful or not. And you can have that same brilliance expressed differently, but you don't want to look for that. And I just think it may be an unconscious bias that I didn't realize I had, you know, my own unconscious biases until I went through diversity training. So, yeah. For, you know, for the benefit of white people listening to this who maybe haven't thought a ton about this, haven't learned a ton about this, maybe don't quite see, you know, what Tyrone and myself are talking about. I'll give myself as an example here. Um, so a number of years back, I managed a Verizon store in West Virginia and um, there were a couple of black employees who worked there. And one of the guys I actually liked quite a bit and he was a great, I mean, he was, he was great, right? He, you know, was everything you'd want in an employee. He hit his sales numbers. He made good relationships with customers and with colleagues. He showed up on time, everything you'd want. Uh, his name is DeAndre. He was a black man and I liked him quite a bit and, you know, didn't consider myself to have a racist bone in my body. Right. I thought I was the least racist person out there. And then, um, I, I realized I was going to be moving to Colorado. So in the, like the maybe, I don't know, three months before I moved, I was kind of thinking and talking about kind of what succession would look like, right? When I moved on, was there anyone in the store who would be a good manager or should the district manager go outside our organization and try to hire a new manager in, right? And I thought about the folks who had working for me and the different pros and cons. And I had a lot of good people working for me who had different strengths, different weaknesses, would maybe make a good manager, maybe not. And it was kind of a hard choice. And after, I don't know, a couple of weeks of mulling this over, thinking about the various options of who it could be, I realized I had not even considered DeAndre. Mm. It had not even crossed my mind. Now, he had been working at the company the longest. He mm. had been an assistant manager at a different store. He had great sales numbers. Like I said, everything about him was great. There's nothing I could really say against him as an employee. But for some reason, when I was thinking about management material, Every employee in the store cycled through my mind before I thought, oh, wait a minute, maybe DeAndre. Mm -hmm. So something about my conditioning from where I was raised, right? These unconscious biases has taught me to not think of black men as leaders, right? And mm -hmm. for some reason, when I thought leader, DeAndre didn't come to my mind for like three weeks, right? And I finally went, holy crap, how did I not think about DeAndre? He's perfect. Yes. So that's just an example, right, of how it can be hard for black professionals to advance, right? I built, bore him no ill will, and I considered myself the least racist person on earth. But the racial conditioning I was raised in had affected my mind in such a way that it was harder for me to see the leadership potential in D than in other folks on my team. Wow. That's a powerful story. And I think it um, resonates with a lot of decision makers. And some of them never get the insight or revelation that they have not actually looked at the full spectrum of candidates, at least equally. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and, and I don't even fully understand why, but I do think there's a consistent pattern where for some reason, it's really hard for members of the majority population, right? So if we're talking about race, it's white people. If we're talking about, you know, gender, it's men. Talking about sexuality, it's straight people. But for, for some reason, members of the majority population have a really hard time seeing the potential in members of underrepresented groups, right? Those mm -hmm. people have to absolutely outshine in the most insane ways to get noticed, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you know that, that sometimes that happens, right? Which is why you do see times sometimes see you know people uh, who are who are able to you know climb the corporate ladder despite being members of marginalized groups, but definitely less common. Here's a here's a weird question for you. Sure. Um, in your career, Tyrone, how often have you heard someone, uh, you know, a, you know, leader at your company or, or maybe even outside your company, have you heard someone in a professional context tell you, you know, Tyrone, you remind me of a younger version of myself? Oh man, I've heard it a few times. Um, yeah, I've heard it a few times. I'll say probably three. Okay. One thing that I've noticed is that I hear that all the freaking time, mm -hmm. all the time. Every old white man leader looks at me and says, I see something of myself in you. I think you've got potential, right? Mm -hmm. And in my career, almost every step I've taken I've been hired when I was underqualified and people were taking a chance on me, right? Mm -hmm. First time I was hired into a management job, I had absolutely no experience. First time I was hired into like a, a larger higher up management position, I had no experience, right? First time I moved into tech sales, I had no experience, right? Like every step along the way, I've been hired with a terrible resume, but there's just something in me people see and they like, right? There's something in me they go, hey, I think he could be successful. I know his resume isn't great, but I see some potential in him. Let's give this guy a shot. Right. And mm -hmm. I've always done well. So they were right to give me a shot. But I wondered how easy would it be for people to see that potential in me and give me a shot if I was a black woman. Right. Mm -hmm. Or if I was disabled or, you know, any one of these, you know, different um, groups that get marginalized. Because that's just always been part of my life that people see something in me. Right. Old leaders and mentors, you know, uh, say, hey, I see something of myself in you. And I've always just wondered, is it. How hard is it, right, for an old white man to see something of himself in a young black man, right? Mm, I feel like yeah. it doesn't happen as often. I think, um, one, I think that's a testament. I believe we all have talents, right? And your talent shines through, and people recognize that talent. Sometimes talent's undeniable, so it doesn't take much effort to recognize it. Mm -hmm. And I believe those are our gifts, right? We just have those talents. Um, I've been very... Uh, blessed, fortunate to have people to advocate for me, which is why I'm able to get to where I have gotten today. And, it's, mm -hmm. and, and um, I've had a lot of a, a lot of uh, black women as mentors. Like some of the people I, I just absolutely look up to, um, black women. They've molded me throughout my professional career. I remember I was young. 18 year old working uh, at a bank and I was working in operations and um, I, I, you know, I was an inner city kid and this is my first corporate job. And I was, I was not accustomed to how I needed to blend in or refine my behavior. And so I had a, a, a black lady pull me aside like, Hey baby, you, you know, you have a potty mouth and, uh, whether it's now, 20 years from now, 10 years from now, if you want to do something in your future, people are going to look at you now, even though you're 18, and reference your character. No matter how much you've changed, 
I'm like, oh, when I worked with him, you know, he did this and he said this. And so that the light bulb went off for me there. But she pulled me aside out of her, you know, the kindness of her heart or seeing potential or whatever it was. And since then, I've always had some type of mentorship. Um, my, my, my last position at the Fed, uh, one of my mentors, I had a bunch of mentors there. They had a formal mentorship program. But my, my direct manager, Mark, uh, is a Caucasian guy, very open-minded. And we just kind of hit it off. And I was at a point in my career where I just said, hey, my job is to make you look good. Your job is to reward me for making you look good. Literally had that conversation like that. And we both you know, held our end of the bargain. But it was Mark was a very uh, open-minded person that had unlearned a lot of the things that he was taught growing up. And he was able to essentially uh, help me recognize the talent in me. He came to me and was like, hey, I don't understand why you're not further ahead in your career. He literally had that conversation with me. And then he became my biggest advocate and champion officially and helped me move up the ranks. And, and then, uh, of course, where I am now, some people took the chance on me here. And uh, I've been able to contribute in, in the way I thought, the way they thought I would. But I've had different mentors of different ethnicities and, and races and and uh, genders throughout the way. And I think that is what has given me uh, more momentum than the average person would be in my demographic or would have in my demographic. Yeah. That's, that's cool. It's good. Um, something else I want to touch on, you know, oftentimes when, when talking about topics of, you know, inclusion um, and belonging in the workplace, right? phrase, you know, bringing your whole self to work comes up, right? Mm -hmm. People of marginalized groups express difficulty bringing their whole selves to work. You know, HR teams and leadership encourage their employees to bring their whole selves to work. And they, they say that, hey, this is a, a, an inviting workplace. Feel free to bring your whole self to work. And, and your experience over the years, how often have you been at companies where you truly could bring your whole self to work? Banking is very conservative in kind of every sense of the manner. And so since I've primarily worked at banks, um, it's an uber conservative environment and COVID has helped relax certain situations, but I don't think I've ever been comfortable bringing my whole self to work in general, in, in any place I've worked at, with the exception of um, when I was working in the mortgage industry, I worked for one of my friends, uh, like a brother to me. He owned the actual company I worked for. And even then we had a high level of, what was university recognized as professionalism, but mm -hmm. we all had the same background. So we were comfortable coming into the office and interacting. We were raised the same way, you know, same cultural values. But when we had clients, of course, we had to uh, display the universal level of, of professionalism. Yeah, that's interesting. Did you notice any difference in your work when you were in that environment versus all the other environments where you couldn't bring your whole self? Uh, not really. Uh, as far as the quality of work, uh, I'm, I can be a workaholic. So mm -hmm. for me, it doesn't matter what environment I'm in. I'm always going to just go, 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 or, or 
give put my best foot forward. I think, but I will say this, being in that environment, I definitely felt um, like I was treated holistically as a person, as opposed to just an employee. You know, how do you contribute? Human nature is really what have you done for me lately? And we don't really take time to consider why a person's performance has dropped off a lot of times, right? Wow. We just look at, hey, Joe's not doing or Sheila's not doing the job she or he, she, he or she normally does. Managers, a lot of times, they, they don't take time to analyze the person holistically. Well, I know that they have a family member in the hospital. I know that they're going through some hard times, whatever it is. They're going to school. When you factor in the whole person, it helps you become a better leader by humanizing that person and understanding there should be ebbs and flows in performance because there's ebbs and flows in life. And so that was probably the biggest difference. Um, you know, we all were friends, so we all knew what was going on in each other's personal lives. We saw each other. We hung out on the weekend. So saw them seven days a week. And so people would know if you were having trouble and, and you could uh, essentially have your expectations changed and it would be okay. So that, what you just said there about, you know, um, I don't remember exactly what, what word you use, but basically how do you explain it and interpret it when someone's performance drops, right? Mm -hmm. um, that brought another memory to me and I'm literally having a, a realization now, an uncomfortable realization on this converse, conversation, that same store in, in Verizon, right? So I'm the manager of that Verizon store. I got maybe seven employees under me, two black men, and then an assortment of white folks um, kind of came in and out throughout the time I was there. And there was one woman who worked there, um, who worked there the whole time I was there. And she had a lot of different stormy things going on in her personal life, right? Between kids and romantic partners and health issues and uh, stuff like that. There was just a number of seasons during her time there when things weren't right at home and her work uh, was affected by that. And I did a pretty good job with her of, you know, being empathetic, being understanding when I noticed her performance do dipping rather than just coming down on hard on her, trying to figure out what was going on and using a gentle hand and a lot of empathy, you know, I was, I was able to, you know, help her cope during the bad times, but then quickly get back up on her feet and, you know, be performing again at a high level. Um, Cause I kind of gave her that space and that understanding when I realized she needed it, I would give her a little bit extra time to like mm. work with her, to help, with, help her, uh, you know, with her performance, uh, which is what, you know, someone in management should do, right? Another one of the gentlemen who worked there, Larry, who's one of the black guys I worked with, also, I think, had some of that going on, right? Different at-home issues. Um, but, you know, honestly, I never really figured out a lot of what was going on. And um, his performance was low a lot. But for some reason, like it didn't seem all that strange to me and it didn't seem like anything I could really do much about. And it didn't really seem worth spending a whole ton of extra time. Um, mm -hmm. Not that I never did, but just across the board, I realized I spent a lot less time with Larry when his performance dipped. It seemed a little bit more expected and natural and unavoidable, right? Mm -hmm. And it was like, okay, well, it just is what it is. He's got to kind of, you know, pull himself up by his bootstraps. If he wants to do better, he'll do better. Um, where when a white woman was having a hard time, it was it was something that was like a problem and out of the ordinary and different. Mm -hmm. 
strange and worth addressing. And what I realized there is that there was this unconscious bias going on with a black man underperforming at work. Didn't seem like anything all that out of the ordinary. Didn't seem like anything I could really do anything about. Just kind of the natural order of things. And I didn't mm -hmm. spend a time with him. Or when a white woman started underperforming at work, it was like, hey, whoa, something's going on here. Let's stop and really get to the bottom of this and really do some intensive labor to work with her. And again, not that I never did that with Larry, but not nearly as much. So now here we are in the situation where by the time I left, Larry probably wasn't going to be at that company very long, right? Certainly mm -hmm. wasn't promoted. Where by the time I left, the other woman, you know, was one of the people being considered for promotion. And again, you can say, you know, people always talk about how, you know, the best person for the job should get the job and who cares about diversity numbers. But when you have these subtle forces at play, maybe Jackie was the best person for the job, but it wasn't like it was entirely an unbiased system, right? Something about my mindset made it seem like it wasn't worth putting the time, effort and energy into working with Larry. Because again, something about my brain just saw an underperforming black person at work and didn't think it was anything all that strange and um, nothing normal. Just normal, yeah. Natural mm -hmm. order things, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, God damn it. I didn't realize what was going on. <laughs> but I definitely spent less time with Larry, right? Than yeah. with Jackie. Oh my God. This is terrible. <laughs> this is terrible. You know, when, when when you're someone like like me, right? Like many white people, I, I think racism is wrong. I recognize it as wrong. And I think of myself as one of the good white people. And then you have these realizations of like, it doesn't mean I'm not participating in keeping the system going in one way or another, right? I'm, I'm, the more I look at my past, the more I realize, ooh, ooh, <laughs> I've been part of this, right? Yeah. I've been part of this, damn it. At least you're getting that revelation, man. Uh, again, I had my own unconscious biases that I wasn't aware of until I actually went through unconscious bias training. And that, uh, that taught me to really dig in and reevaluate you know what makes me up what 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 why do i think the way i think so i took a philosophy class years ago when i was going to community college and in that philosophy class i learned to challenge everything my belief system dot 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 and it was great while i was in that class because i was actively um doing these activities that always were challenging who i was as a person and why i was that way but once i got out of that class I kept part of that, but as life creeps in and, you know, you just start doing different stuff, I wasn't uh, nearly having the same type of regimen to make sure I'm, I'm evaluating myself, right? As I began to get older, you know, it, it came like a nagging desire for me to really understand myself. And so that's when I started unlearning. I, I had the opportunity to be put on the very first diversity board. Uh, for the business unit I was in for the Federal Reserve Bank. And so we got together and we met and I got to really gel with this group of people and we were putting together curriculums for, for the other members of our business line to go through this diversity training. Because ultimately, if you want the company to change, you have to have diversity in the decision-making um, level of the company. A lot of times companies try to add diversity but always at the lower levels like i, I went to <laughs> i'm on the board of a not-for-profit right mm -hmm. and we had a meeting at a country club and i'd never been to a country club before so i was kind of excited to see what the heck you yeah. know 
So I pull up and it's a beautiful golf course. And I see these people working and instantly it looks like a plantation to me, right? Oh. No, I'm like, wow, man, this looks like a plantation. So I get in there and everyone's nice as heck, but I noticed all the people that were in kind of management and leadership positions were Caucasian. And when I walked past the kitchen, everybody in the kitchen was black and Hispanic, right? Yeah. And now I don't think that was necessarily intentional, but I thought it was ironic, you know, Right. the numbers would show, yes, this is a diverse workplace. But no one's in leadership position. So. Yeah. Oh, right. That's a whole other topic of diversity is what roles do these people hold? You know, is it mm -hmm. your, uh, you know, your secretary and your assistant who are, you know, women and people of color or, or is it the, the senior leaders? Huh? Here's, here's a question for you. Um, mm -hmm. It's something I've, I've wondered, actually never, never had the opportunity to ask. So, so apologize if this is, I don't know. Um, I don't, don't know how to ask it, but <laughs> While you and I were certainly raised in, in different environments, we were raised in the same country and part of the same macro culture. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like any of those biases I described in myself even exist in you? Meaning even yourself, maybe you're predisposed to think of black people as underperforming at work and it's harder for you to see that oh. black people. Does that exist in your mind as well? Yeah, so um, I don't know if you've ever heard the term white ice is colder. And it, it has a historical context. It goes back, I forgot um, what town was in down south, but there were two convenience stores. One was owned by a, a black guy, one was owned by a white guy. And the black people also went to the white convenience stores. They're directly across the street from each other. And for whatever reason, they just liked the ice. It's the same in the white convenience store, more than they liked the ice in the black convenience store, right? It was literally the same ice. They had the same distributor. It wasn't like there was a whole lot of ice distributors yeah. at that time. But for whatever reason, people felt, black people in particular, uh, went to the white convenience store to, to buy the exact same ice that was being sold at the black convenience store at yeah. the same price, right? So what that means is essentially we've been, and I say we've, as black people in this country, at least in the inner city experience or how I was raised, right? You're mm -hmm. taught that white culture is better, just in general, across the board, just about everything. So you have to really analyze it and, and ask yourself why, right? For example, my name is Tyrone, right? Tyrone is considered a very ethnic name mm -hmm. in this country, despite the fact that it actually uh, has Greek and in Gaelic origin, as far as the definition and, and uh, etymology of the name, it's not even American, it's not even African, right? It's, it's Greek and Gaelic. But anyway, we're talking to Tyrone is a very ethnic name in this country. And just having an ethnic name, we're taught to name our children in order for them to get jobs, right? So if you see John Watson, John Watson sounds like a good biblical name. I want to dive into this resume. The exact same resume with Tyrone Watson on there might not give a second thought. That in itself is teaching us that, hey, how we come up with our names, like you, um, the name would be considered like ghetto in quotation marks, right? Sneakwa, whatever it is. Since it doesn't align with 
a biblical or, or historically white name, Shaniqua would be considered ghetto. That's us being taught to devalue our culture. What what is wrong with coming up with names for your children and, and making those up? They don't have to align with these biblical names, but yet we're taught that, hey, that name's ghetto, that name's terrible, yeah. and you should name your kids according to that. And ironically, I was watching a documentary and it was a pimp. It was an actual pimp in this documentary that pointed that out. He was like, listen, we are taught to disband or devalue our own culture and creativity and adopt another culture. But part of the reason is we're never taught about our, our African heritage, right? I had to go to college to learn about African-American history at a, at a more, uh, you know, a, a micro level. Yeah. College, before I actually learned about all these things I learned about Black culture, right? Well, since we don't have a culture inherently that we learn, learn about, we, we invent culture, right? So you look at hip-hop, for example. Hip-hop, is, I would say, it's become a universal culture, but essentially it was started by Black people yeah. out of a necessity to have our own culture or just, I don't even want to say necessity, just out of creativity, right? Mm-hmm. Again, we're, we've been constantly taught to devalue. So I've had to unlearn a lot of things that I've learned. Like um, my great grandparents who helped raise me. Basically, if white people did it, you should do it. You know, that was literally, and if white people don't do it, then you shouldn't do it. And it was like, why? Right? Why? And so, yeah, I've learned that I had a lot of biases that I'm constantly unraveling and rebuilding uh, myself. I've done a, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of soul searching. I think right after the time I hit 35, but when I was going into my 40s, I remember right around the time I was 39, man, I just really started reprogramming myself. I don't even want to take credit for it. It's like I was getting revelations of, hey, you need to change this, and you look at life this way because of this, and it, it was like instantly, I was like, oh, man, it's like a a veil had been removed from my eyes and I understood better. And while like at a certain logical level, I understand what you're saying. Truthfully, I can't on any sort of emotional level understand it. I've never had anything like that. This experience, like not, ha- not feeling like, I don't know, the, the like, yeah. <laughs> See, I gave it express it verbally. Like this is so outside my lived experience for myself, right? As a cisgender, straight white man who's able-bodied, like, like, I've always had these messages that like what I am is desired and I should just mm. be what I am. And the best of the world has been people like me and I'm capable of being the same. And any sort of culture that I was raised with in my family, I'm not even aware of what my culture is, honestly, because my culture is just right. The water of the fishbowl I'm swimming in. I don't even know that it's there. Um, mm. Just everything around me is my own culture. So I don't even know if I could tell you what my culture is. I'm sure it's there, but yeah. Wow. Again, logically, I can kind of piece together what you're saying and understand it, but like emotionally and viscerally, I have no common thread. <laughs> it's like to say some things you just have to go through, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, you know, typically when someone's sharing experience, even if you haven't been through what they've been through, you can draw a connection to something else in your life. And it's like, well, I've never lost, you know, uh, a family member, but I lost a dog. So I know what grief feels like, right? Yeah. 
parallels. What you're talking about, I'm like, okay, I have no parallels to make. <laughs> no parallels. No part of my life has ever made me feel anything like what you're talking about feeling. So logically, I can kind of maybe imagine what it might feel like, but emotionally and bodily, no. <laughs> it's just crazy. Yeah, the part I think the reason I asked that is I had heard it in something I was reading right in the last twelve months, probably um, that you know uh, children when they're given Barbies with an arrayed skin tone will prefer mm. and play more with and fight over the light skinned Barbies and will kind of disregard and ignore the dark skinned Barbies. But it's not just white kids who show that preference. Par apparently, black kids show that same preference too, and kids across all races that uh, that I'm aware of show that same preference. So again, it's interesting that even at you know six years old, we picked up these messages of like, light skin is preferable. That's the better yeah. right. culture is better culture, and the dark ones that uh, cast them to the side. Like we call it color struck. I don't know if you've heard that that term, color struck. And essentially, it's uh, normally used in the black community when you prefer light everything over dark everything, right? And um, it, it goes back quite a ways as to, I've been told, that it goes back to uh, white women being the, the most desirable woman on earth. And so since uh, black males weren't supposed to interact with white women, they would look for fair-skinned black women to supplement mm -hmm. that not being able to do that. And what that does is essentially create this whole other system of, um, you know, the lighter you are, the more attractive you are, the more desirable you are, no matter your gender. And um, if you look at American history, I learned this in African-American history class at UMKC, if you look at a lot of people that have made advancements um, in the name of, uh, for like uh, African-Americans, leading up to, you know, before the civil rights era, a lot of them were biracial. You know, W.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, I mean, uh, consequently, fair skin, light skin, blue eyes, right? Yeah. Um, you could go down a list of, of people that were just fair skin having an opportunity. And I, I read a study a few years ago that said, basically, attractive people get more opportunities in corporate America. Yeah. Well, if my skin tone makes me more desirable, that means the lighter I am by sheer relativity, I'm going to get more opportunities because my fair skin makes me more desirable. Desirable, attractive people get more opportunities in corporate America. Yeah, it's crazy. Speaking of education, right, I literally didn't even know what the word colorism meant or that there's such a thing even existed until like very recently, right? Just growing up in white America, there's like white people and non-white people. And the fact that like in that group of non-white people, there's a range and a split and dynamic It's and all this stuff and bias, <laughs> totally, totally clueless, right? Like I had no idea. Yeah. But again, I think it's just perfect evidence, right, of the fact that this whole culture we live in in the modern world especially the u.s but a whole across the whole world just for some reason prefers and values whiteness and you know tolerates right blackness and it's mm -hmm. like and it's everywhere right it's crazy all right um back to the corporate topic i think i have more one question i want to make sure we, we we hit on um before we wrap here yeah. i i imagine that 
members of any marginalized group, right? Whether you're disabled or gay or black or, or whatever, any marginalized group in a corporate environment, I imagine regularly have to make hard choices. And that choice comes down to, do I do what's best for the world and best for other members of my group? Or do I do what's best for me personally in my career, right? Mm -hmm. Example is, you know, you witness or are victim of some kind of microaggression. Mm -hmm. Do you speak up? Do you be the squeaky wheel? Do you advocate? Do you fight for making the world a better place and making corporate America different um, by speaking up and possibly ruining your reputation and ruining your relationship and ruining your chances of advancement? Or do you just smile and nod and play the ass kisser role and make people like you and never complain and speak up at all, right? Yeah. You experienced that kind of dilemma in your career a lot and, and, and how have you handled it if you did? Um, yeah, I, I did. And I wasn't as graceful as I should have been when I was handling it. And that's one thing I wish I could go back and do over. Mm. Again, inner city kid, I had a, a, a real inner city life, right? Like I grew up in this rough section and participated we called it jumping off the porch i jumped off the porch early as a, as a child which means i participated in whatever activities is going on in my neighborhood mm -hmm. um in my culture or in respect is everything right respect is everything and disrespect is not supposed to be tolerated and you address it where it is and so when i was younger if i felt like it was disrespect then i would escalate it uh, what I've also had to learn is that uh, aggression and, and the threat of violence, physical violence or verbal abuse aren't tools that really need to be used. Like if you're, if you're in physical harm, you know, that's different, right? But um, violence is a universal language. Everyone understands it. And most of the time, everyone respects the threat of violence. So aggression where I came from almost always led to some type of physical violent act, right? Hmm. And I didn't know how to separate that initially when I got into corporate America. And I didn't understand that how other people were raised, you know, this aggression didn't usually escalate into violence, right? So um, if I felt disrespected, you know, I would bring it up and I had the attitude that it, it would go wherever it went. And so I'll, um, I, I actually told one person, hey, don't let the fact that we're in this place of business let you feel like you can say anything you want to me because I do not care from that standpoint. And they had never been spoken to like that before. Now, that did give me a reputation as being, you know, a bad teammate, uncooperative and uh, super aggressive which by nature, I'm not an aggressive person, but I do have touch points and things I just can't tolerate. So I've had to, I've had to deal with that. What I've learned to do is there's an opportunity for education, right? Like I've, I've had some things that what I would say are, would be generally offensive to anyone of color. They've been said to me and I, in the context they were using, they weren't meant to be offensive, I had to educate that person that whether you're in, that's your intent or not, here's how it comes across and, and here's how it's probably going to come across to most people of color you deal with. And so I've learned to take more of an educational approach yeah. instead of being you know, hyper aggressive. That's interesting. So much we could go further into just on that topic alone, but um, 
close out with, uh, I'm curious, what, what would you say, um, you know, advice to give first to white people who want to make the professional workspace a safer place for members of marginalized groups in the context of this conversation, specifically, right, racially underrepresented groups. But truthfully, it can probably apply generally to, you know, if you want to make your workplace a better place for any marginalized groups, and you are part of the majority, right? So in my case, you know, being a cisgender straight white male, I'm part of every majority. What can I do to make the workplace safer for folks who aren't part of the majority group? I can't highlight enough um, of the value of, of unconscious bias training, right? Uh, I learned a ton from it. And ultimately, what I've learned is that a lot of times people don't know that they have these biases baked in. Now, I've learned that there's overt racism and covert racism. Yeah. And overt racism, you know what it is, hate groups, you know, uh, systematic racism, that's overt. Covert, covert racism is the unconscious bias, right? And unless you take time to really analyze yourself, I don't know that unless and you can't get rid like you were getting revelations throughout your life of, hey, maybe I'm not looking at this the best way. Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will never get that revelation without having some type of training to stimulate that thought pattern that will lead to that revelation. Right. So I, I say unconscious by and the other thing is um, understand that there's a difference between equity and equality. Right. Uh, equality means we all get the same number of opportunities. Equity means you recognize that people don't get the same number of opportunities. So you put systems in place to help those people that aren't getting the same number of opportunities, especially for the marginalized people of color and, and gender bias and you know, any other bias, right? So those two things, don't think that um, just because you had the opportunity to do something that everyone else has been presented with the opportunity to do advance the same way and then understand why people aren't presented with the same opportunities you've been presented with. Yeah, that's awesome. And then what about for folks who are members of marginalized groups, right? So again, in your case, for black people who have made it, who have succeeded, who are established in the corporate world, um, is there anything that you would, you know, advice you'd share that they can do to make the workplace better for other members of marginalized groups or even their own marginalized group? Oh, man, I'm not going to lie. I wish I had some golden nugget or, or gem. But I honestly believe that, well, be honest, you know what I mean? But in a tactful manner, I, I will say that um, my grandma used to say you can attract more flies with honey than you can vinegar. Yeah. That's not to say kiss, but but a lot of times people don't really uh, hear you if you're coming across in an aggressive manner. Human nature is to get defensive because you're attacking me, right? But sure. if, if I'm educating you, then you may be more receptive to learning. I just think it's it's a tough because we're not necessarily in a position to teach you everything you need to know about systematic racism and how it affects you and us. And so um, I will say disarm people by you know, um, 
try to disarm people by if you have to have a, a tough conversation, you know, do it tactfully. And one of the biggest things that helped me is understanding that your value system may not translate to another person. I, I had a huge shift in thought when I really understood that how a person spoke to me wasn't necessarily aligning with my value system. To them, it may not be disrespectful. That may be how they speak to everyone and it's cool, it's nothing to get upset about. For me, it's viewed as super disrespectful and how do I address that? So really taking time to understand the value system of people around you, that will allow you to relate to them better and communicate better when you need to have those tough conversations. Cool. Well, thanks so much for, for everything, Tyrone. I mean, literally just in this conversation, uh, I, I had a, a light bulb moment, right, for something in my past where, where racial conditioning affected me. So thank you. Um, it definitely benefited me. I'm sure those listening benefit from this as well. So thanks for being so open and honest about your experiences. No problem. I really appreciate the opportunity. So thank you for having me. All right. We'll talk to you later, my friend. All right. Have a good one.